1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: Real love is calling. Listen, Truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is you with every sunrise.
2: You know King Herod is a politician, alright right. He's—I mean—he's not elected; he's appointed by the Roman government. But nevertheless, he's in a political role. Okay. Don't think that the politician is the answer to your problems. Herod was not the answer to their problems. God is the answer to our problems. And we gotta be very careful. We need to be involved in the political process and vote your values and all that good stuff. You know, I'm a big promoter of that, but I don't care who's in the White House. You better make sure you understand who's on the throne.
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Acts. Throughout history, people have chosen leaders for themselves in the hope that these authority figures would somehow save them from life's woes. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches us that there is not one king or politician on earth that can create utopia on earth. Furthermore, God is on his throne, and no one on earth receives authority unless it is granted by heaven. Pastor Gary admonishes us to stop putting our hope in mere people, but to trust Jesus with our future. We are secure and have perfect peace in all circumstances in Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for today's message from the book of Acts, chapter 12.
2: left off at the end of Acts chapter 12. Here's what was happening in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa I is uh, the ruler of the region at this particular time. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who attempted to kill baby Jesus when he gave the order for all the babies in the vicinity of uh, Bethlehem to be killed, all the baby boys. So that is this guy's grandfather. Herod the Great was the grandfather of this guy in chapter 12 who is Herod Agrippa the I. He is just as bloodthirsty as his grandfather because he is... Uh, deriving great pleasure in having some christians killed and the first one he has killed is james one of the apostles one of the original twelve james the brother of john the two brothers the sons of zebedee and so he has james put to death by the sword in other words he has james beheaded that's the first part of chapter 12 and when he sees that it pleases a lot of people who have rejected christ and rejected christianity so it he sees that it has pleased a lot of people that james was killed he He then has Peter thrown in prison, but because it's one of the feasts, he doesn't kill Peter immediately. He holds them in prison, and during the night, an angel of the Lord comes, miraculously delivers Peter from prison. And when it is discovered that Peter has escaped, although they don't know how, per se, Herod orders, the end of uh, where we left off, uh, uh, Herod orders that the Roman guards, who were entrusted with watching Peter... Uh, that they should be executed because in those days a, a a roman soldier had to receive the penalty for the crime if if the prisoner that he was guarding escaped under his watch and so because peter was going to be executed uh instead the the guards were executed Uh, because they neglected to keep him in prison. Well, it was a miraculous deliverance, no fault of their own, but they were executed nonetheless, because that's Herod Agrippa. Well, we're not done with Herod Agrippa. We still have a little bit here in chapter 12 that details him, and in fact, it details his death, and it's a very kind of a tragic and gruesome death. Uh, Chapter 12, we left off here. The middle of verse 19, my Bible has a subtitle here that says, "'Herod's death.'" It says, uh, middle of verse 19, "...then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply." On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's a pleasant way to go. The food of worms. Well, here's how the story unfolds for us. We have some people in Tyre and Sidon, who is is part still of the province of the Roman Empire, and Herod is kind of a puppet of the Roman Empire. He's he's put as a king over this region, and some people have a dispute with him, but they also know they better reconcile with him, seeing as how he is uh, the one who is entrusted with their survival, like uh, providing food for them. So they come down to where he is in Caesarea. And Caesarea, again, is a beautiful port city right in the Mediterranean. Uh, This is where the capital was for the Roman Empire of this particular region. This is where Herod is located. And uh, these folks come, and, you know, if if you want to get something from a politician, you butter them up. And that's what they start doing. Herod takes a seat in, in his royal robes, and he addresses the people who have come to appeal to him, and... In, in, in his speech, as he's giving this speech, the people respond by saying, Whoa, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And they're just, they're just buttering him up. They're just buttering him up. But Herod doesn't say anything in response, and he takes the glory. And when he takes the glory, God doesn't like that. He never likes that. And so he struck Herod dead. Now, Josephus, interestingly, this is not in the Bible, but in histo- ancient historical records... Josephus, who was an historian of the first century, commissioned by the Roman Empire to write Jewish history. Josephus himself was a Jew, and he wrote this about this event in part in uh, Josephus's works called Antiquities. He said this, quote, that he that is Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning... "...at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, one from another, though not for his good, that he was a god, a severe pain also arose in his belly... "...and began in a most violent manner, when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life." So that's what Josephus records about this event. Again, this is, for those of you taking notes, Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great. And please note with me that he died because he did not give glory to God when people deified him as a god instead of a man." Why does this upset God? Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And that is exactly what Herod did. He took glory from God when people ascribed honor to him as if he were a god. And so when he received that praise, shining in his silver royal robes, God struck him dead for that. Now, this is an important lesson for us, lest anyone should be struck dead. So listen up, please. This is part two of this. For those of you who are still taking notes and those of you who don't, maybe might want to write this down. We can be guilty of stealing glory from God when one of two or both things happens. The first is by what we say. That is, when we take credit for credit that belongs to God. So when someone comes up to you and pays great honor to you or shows great appreciation to you and you in return say things like, well, thank you for noticing how accomplished I've become because I've really worked hard and I've done a lot to bring me to the place where I am today. There's a lot of I in that answer. Did you hear that? Okay. When you say stuff like that, you're stealing glory from God. Now, I know the reasoning goes like this. Well, wait a minute. I actually did work hard. And and I actually, you know, I put myself through school. And then I, you know, I worked from rags to riches story. And, you know, I've accomplished what I've accomplished. But as a Christian, you see, as a believer, this is what we need to all understand. That we shouldn't touch the glory or take credit for anything. Listen, Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. God says in that passage, You may say to yourself, My power... And the work of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But then verse 18 says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. In other words, the very ability and skill that you have to make a living or to do what you do so well as you do, is all because God has given you that ability or that skill or that talent or that knowledge or that wisdom to do what you've done and to accomplish what you've accomplished. And we have to be very careful that when people notice it, that we just turn the glory to God. And we say, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, your testimony, but it can just be a simple thing like, well, well, thank you, praise God. You'll be amazed at how, if you're careful to give glory to God, when people give you credit for something that you really need to give credit to God for, how God will then continue to promote you and to bless you and to use you for His glory. But if you start taking credit for stuff that belongs to God, you can forget any advancement as far as God is concerned because He will not share His glory with another. Now, here's another way that we steal His glory, and that is by what we don't say by what we don't say. That is when we don't correct people who praise us for something that God did through us or for us. So somebody sees you at a restaurant with your kids and your kids are wonderfully behaved and they come up to you and pay you a wonderful... Oh, you're such terrific parents. We noticed your kids eating there in the, in the table with you and we just wanted to commend you. You are just wonderful parents. And if you just don't say a thing and you just kind of let them think that you're all that when you know the only reason that your kids are as well-behaved as they are is because it's the grace of God, you know that. You know it's nothing you've done. You know it's the grace of God. But you let them think that you are all that and that you are one of the greatest parents. Mm-hmm, I could write the book. Mm-hmm. And you let them think that? Then you've stolen glory from God by what you didn't say. This is Herod's sin. See, he let the people think that he was all that. He let the people think when they said what they did that the reason he was as he was was because he affirmed what they were saying to him. So even by what we don't say, sometimes we can steal the glory from God. So we have to be very careful. One of my first trips to Israel, I was given a coin that dates back to the first century AD. And the coin was minted by this guy, Herod Agrippa I. And so I, I put it on a little necklace. Sometimes I wear it. I don't wear it now. And I remember when I first got it, Terry's like, why do you want a hair to hair Agrippa a around your neck? I said, because I always want to remember, don't touch the glory. I don't want to die from worms. Don't touch the glory. And, you know, it's particularly important in pastoral ministry, I have to tell you. It's particularly important because as pastors, we have to... I mean, this is just the way it goes. We have to take all the blame for everything that goes wrong, and we can't take credit for anything that goes right. <laughs> because, because, that's just the way it is. Because what's going wrong is probably our own mistakes and our own flesh, and what's going right is all God. And so we got to be careful to give credit where credit is due and take the blame and responsibility for what we don't want God to get blamed for. So it's, it's important that in all our lives, in our careers in our marriages, in our families, in our accomplishments, in our successes, in our bank accounts, and all those kind of things, that, that we need to see it as the sum total of just the beneficent hand of God. That God has been good to us. God has been gracious to us. He has done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what we could hope or imagine. And when anybody starts to give you glory or credit for anything, be careful to point him to the Lord. It could just be simple things like, well, thank you for saying that. I just want to give glory to God. Thank you for noticing that. Praise God. Thank you for saying what you did. But, you know, it's, it's just the Lord. And, and just simple. And, you know, don't, you don't need to have false humility. and You don't need to go on and on about it. And, but just, just simply make sure that people know that God gets the glory and God gets the credit. Learn from this guy's life. Not a good way to go. You know, King Herod is a politician, all right? He's, I mean, he's not elected. He's appointed by the Roman government. But nevertheless, he's in a political role. Okay. don't think that the politician is the answer to your problems. Herod was not the answer to their problems. God is the answer to our problems. And we got to be very careful. We need to be involved in the political process and vote your values and all that good stuff. You know, I'm a big promoter of that. But I don't care who's in the White House. You better make sure you understand who's on the throne. Because we can vote for people all day long. Our hope is not in our politicians our hope is in the Lord and these people you know they put their hope in the politician and the politician failed them and God killed the guy because he touched the glory but let's always remember don't look to the political figures like they are our God okay only the Lord is on the throne and he is our hope well the rest of verse 12 says this in verse 24 but the word of God continued to increase and spread that's a good thing despite what Herod tried to do to circumvent that Uh, the word of God continued to increase and spread he's dead now And then verse 25 says, And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now we come into chapter 13 here, and chapter 13 begins what is commonly referred to as the first missionary journey of Paul's. Paul is going to take three, some say four missionary journeys where he's going to travel around uh, much of Europe, primarily Turkey, if you look on a modern map, and he's going to encourage the church and he's going to plant churches and he's going to uh, go about on these missionary journeys. Uh, and, and it starts here in chapter 13. All of chapter 13 and 14 detail the first missionary journey of uh, uh, Saul, otherwise known as Paul. We're going to see his name gets changed here in chapter 13. He is going to be accompanied here by Barnabas, and also John, who is called Mark, John Mark. Now, John Mark is the same Mark who will later, about 20-some years later, write the Gospel of Mark. So that's John Mark here. John Mark, when he writes the Gospel of Mark, refers to himself in this veiled way at the end of his Gospel about how he was present at the time that Jesus was arrested, and he refers to himself as a young man, and it is believed that that John Mark was about 12 years of age at the time that Jesus was arrested. He was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but he was nevertheless a follower, and you see him in the garden when Jesus is arrested, and he flees and they try to grab him and he makes this reference about how and he, and he uses the third person he says there was a young man but we all know what he's referring to himself and he says and he, and he left his garment you know because it was taken from him as they tried to pull him in among those that they were arresting and he said and he fled naked so so that's that's his commentary on himself i'm the naked unnamed kid at the end of my gospel of mark but he was believed to be about 12 years of age now here in uh, in acts 13 he's about 20 Six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. 27, 28. This is now about 48 AD. John Mark would have been born about 20 AD if he was about 12 at the time of Jesus' arrest in 32, 33 AD. So he's now about 26, 27, 28. And um, uh, Paul is a bit older than he is. And he's going, the three of them are going to travel here to try to um, share the gospel and to encourage uh, Christians uh, who have been scattered now uh, around the, the known world of Asia Minor at the time. So, this is the first missionary journey. Now, in chapter 13, verse 1, it gives us the geography. In the church at Antioch, technically speaking, today it would actually be in Turkey, but in the Bible, it was referred to as Antioch of Syria. And there is a large Christian community there. In fact, we read last week from uh, from chapter... Um, uh, 11 That this is where uh, Christians were, were first called uh, Christians at Antioch. And so this place has a large Christian community, and uh, this is where they are going to begin their missionary journey. And they're going to begin it under these conditions. Look here, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, this is that same Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Now, that is one of Herod the Great's sons. That's the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded. It's a different Herod. And Saul. And while, verse 2, "...while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting..." The Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So this is the first kind of great commissioning of the first missionaries. Uh, it begins here at the church of Antioch and it talks about how there were prophets and teachers and that the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I that I've called them to." Now, How is it that the Holy Spirit said this? Where they gathered together, it says that they're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. So they're having kind of a a prayer and praise meeting. And as they're worshiping, as they're fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit said. It is is possible it was an audible voice, but it is more likely that it was the voice of the Holy Spirit that was spoken through a vessel, through a person. It says here there were prophets and teachers. So it is likely that someone had a prophetic word or a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that simply then announced to the church there at Antioch that that the Holy Spirit wants to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that he's called them to, and they were going to send him out. So as they prepared to send out Barnabas and Saul, they lay hands on them. They pray over them. They commission them. And they send them off. Now, it's interesting that in the commissioning here, there's no specific direction. The Holy Spirit does not give any more information. Where are they supposed to go? That had to have been a question. Okay, Lord, we're set apart. Where do you want us to go? And I want you to know, first place they go. Look at after verse 3. There's a subtitle in my Bible. It says, on Cyprus. Cyprus is going to be the first place they go. Now, Cyprus is an island here in the middle of the Mediterranean. But the Holy Spirit didn't say go to Cyprus. So how is it that they're going to be led to Cyprus? And here's what we need to understand. Sometimes we over-spiritualize stuff. It tells us back in Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas was born and raised on the island of Cyprus. That's where he's from. And so sometimes if you feel like you get a partial word or direction from the Lord, you don't necessarily have to over-spiritualize it. It seems that what is happening here is that when they get this word from the Lord that Barnabas and Saul are to be commissioned by God and sent out that they simply resort to something very natural. Where should we go? Barnabas is like, well, I grew up on Cyprus. That's kind of my hometown, my home country. Why don't we go to Cyprus? It's a beautiful boat ride there. It's in the Mediterranean. What could go wrong? And so that's the way they start. So sometimes we have to think to ourselves, don't always over-spiritualize stuff. Sometimes when God is directing you and leading you, he will direct you in very natural ways. Sometimes you... You know, you, you might feel like there's a, a move on the horizon in your life. You are like, where should we move to? I wonder where God wants us to go. I'm just feeling this nagging sense that we're supposed to move. And, but you don't do anything about it. And then all of a sudden, you, you get laid off from your job. Oh, God's kind of moving us along. Well, where should we go now? I don't have another job lined up. I don't know where to go. And sometimes it's just the most natural thing. And so what they're doing here seems to be a very natural thing. Let's go to someplace maybe that is familiar. Let's go to someplace that we already know. And they want to reach out to his own country, his own uh, familiar people, and they're going to first go to Cyprus. So verse 4 says, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. That's a tiny city there next to Antioch. So it's the port city on the Mediterranean. And they sailed from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis... They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Okay, so they're going to sail from Seleucus to the island of Cyprus, and they come to uh, Salamis, which is a city on the northern part of the island, and that's where they uh, disembark, and they, they first go to a Jewish synagogue. So it tells us right here that there's a contingency of Jewish people in Cyprus. And they go right to the Jewish synagogue and they proclaim the word of God. Because these guys are Jews, and so they're going to fit right in. They're going to go to the Jewish people that they are familiar with. And then it adds again that John was with them as their helper.
1: There's much more to glean from the pages of Acts and the history of the early church, but we'll pause our journey through it for today. Join us next time as Pastor Gary continues to share the the power of the Holy Spirit with us. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection, Pastor Gary, or the church these messages originate from, we encourage you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Browse through our archive of previous messages while you're there. And feel free to share them with friends and family. Download our mobile app as well to keep God's Word with you as you go about your daily activities. Pastor Gary has also made available a study guide to accompany his series, In Acts. You can find this digital booklet and companion resources under the teachings tab. Do you live in the Leesburg area or will you be visiting in the near future? If so, we'd like to extend an invitation to join us for our weekly gatherings. We meet each Sunday and Wednesday to spend time in prayer and worship and studying the Bible. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc for service times, more information and directions. If you can't join us in person, don't worry. We live stream our services. Just click the link under the teachings tab. Thanks for joining us today. And be sure to tune in again for another edition of Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say
2: you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not alone